Hey, Biggs here. Before I begin the show, I just wanted to remind everybody, if you didn't know, Movies with Wrestlers is a podcast on our network. I am on the episode that's on this week right now, and I'm talking about a rock movie, Skyscraper, and we're going to compare that with the John Cena movie 12 Rounds. This is part of a larger conversation that they've had, John Cena movies or the Rock movies. It's been a great season. I really love the podcast anyway. I think this is my third time being on it. So definitely check out the complete run of the show. But if you're not sure, you need to test the waters. You can hear me and what's got to be his longest episode <laughs> talking about Skyscraper. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. I'm Brandon. Carl disappeared. <laughs> Don't know where he's at. We got Ghost Carl in the room. He'll occasionally scream out about something that just enrages him, I'm sure. He'll make his presence known by flying a microphone across the room or something. In two episodes, we'll get Carl God. <laughs> well, let's start out. So we watched Masters of the Universe. I just saw the first episode because I came back from vacation and I only got a chance to see one. I think you got to see the whole run of the I first I saw the first the season, part, right? yeah. And that's where uh, we got Carl God. It's a uh, Skelly God. So a few spoilers in here. I'm not going to – since uh, Biggs hasn't seen too much, I'm probably going to keep it kind of yeah kind of light here. But I'm not too worried about it either, though. Just for reference, so I'm going to watch it and enjoy it one way or the other. So, so my youngest kid and I we watched the first three episodes when it dropped last week or the day after, I think, and then we watched one another night, and then today we finished up the series. I was a little disappointed in it. And I think that's just my own personal. I I I watched a lot of the Shira Princesses of Power with uh, the kiddo, and that one it felt a lot more in depth than Masters did. It really dove into the characters a lot more. I feel like this one, there's so many characters they're trying to like bring people up to speed on. And for me, that I watched some of the He-Man back when I was kid back in mid 80s or whatever i haven't touched it since so i don't remember and i think a lot of people are going into this the same way there's a lot of people that i mean masters of the universe was definitely their their joint and seen what all three series of them now because they had the mid to like the okay so there was like the the cartoon in the 80s and then there was the She-Ra cartoon, if you're if you're counting that. Yeah, and then there was and another. There was like a revival of it in the '90s, which was like a futuristic thing, which I never really saw, or not enough to to have any kind of in-depth opinion on. And then there was the more recent one, which I've seen nothing of. I mean, it was a solid story. It just they had to do so much explaining, and I, the first part, I think really got into like developing the world that this is set in pretty much. So I think the second half is going to be quite a bit better where they can finally really play with the characters. I did like how they made it so things had consequences to it. I know like just watching, just thinking back on what I watched as a kid and, you know, G.I. Joe and where everything resets the end of the episode and it's just like, Something the next episode might or might not follow in. So, I mean, they were very episodic. This was definitely a very cohesive story. Having just seen the first episode, I know Kevin Smith had explained earlier that he was basically treating it as if the earlier cartoon series had happened and they were just continuing off of that. Which I think accounts for a lot of the, like, there's all these crazy characters and not a lot of explanation as to who they are. I'm okay with it, but it's also, like, I that was my jam when I was a kid. Like, I had more He-Man than anything. The original run of He-Man toys, I had them all. Uh, I definitely watched all the original cartoons, I'm sure of it, because it was a mainstay in my house. Like, it was just, that was, like, our number one cartoon that we watched. So I was very into He-Man. So it would take me a minute to remember who certain characters were, but I'd be like, Oh, yeah, there's Stankor. Like, <laughs> yeah, there, you know, uh, there's Tila. Like, even Amanda watched it with me 
and she loved the old He-Man cartoon, but we've gone back and watched them on YouTube. Like oh, we they're... had done it over the years trying to watch it with the kids when they're really little and just realize like how awful they are now. And I like that idea that he's like, no, it happened, but it's the He-Man series that you remember, not what you actually saw as a kid. Right? Yeah. And I think that they succeeded on that, having just seen the, the pilot episode. I do want to get into something that's somewhat spoilerific, although it will be revealed in the first episode. And that is that He-Man and Skeletor essentially die. And I'm sure they don't really die. They probably just go somewhere else. But that sparked this big outrage on the internet. Like it was kind of there before because that detail had leaked out. And I'm not surprised because it's based off of a He-Man Revelations comic. And that's what happens in the comic. So I wasn't surprised to hear that it was going to happen. I wasn't surprised to like see it happen in the episode. And I don't care because it kind of makes sense to me if you're trying to like reestablish a whole world to take the two characters that everybody who's drawn to this knows and take them off the board so that you can introduce these other things. It's a strange choice to do it right out of the gate, but it's also kind of a ballsy choice, and I tip my cap. And it actually probably got me more intrigued on what the story was, that I wasn't just focused on He-Man and Skeletor, like, and those are the ones that I remember, but I was like, there's all these other characters, and I know from watching the She-Ra show that there's so many characters, and they have so much in-depth stuff, and it was just like... You know, I I know what He-Man's deal is. I know what Skeletor's deal is. What about Tila? We get a big story on Evelyn. Like, she's very integral in the first part of it. And so we get a lot of depth. Fuck, we got an interesting Orko that's just not an annoying piece of shit in the background. Yeah, I hated him in the cartoon, but I actually liked him right away in this. And, like, hats off to Griffin Davis. So he was in The Tick. He played Arthur in The Newest Tick. But... Uh, how I mostly know him is he does my favorite podcast that's not on this network, yeah. which is Blank <laughs> Check. And I love that podcast so much. And they'll go off about movies for anywhere from an hour and a half to three and a half hours, depending on the episode. But I think he does a great job because he can get so high pitched and he's really got that voice. But he really captures the character and makes me like really enjoy the character and seem like a good comic relief character in that, you know. Like, the first episode, he's like, Cringer is afraid of the fireworks because Cringer is afraid of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he puts him in a bubble to keep out the sound, but he can't breathe. <laughs> so then he tries to, like, uh, dispel, the, dispel bubble. the bubble, and instead he shrinks it. <laughs> and, of course, somebody just goes and pops the bubble. You know, Classic Orko right there. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the stuff with Sarah Michelle Gellar's character for Tila. That's the other thing. Like, the voice cast is very good in this. Yeah. I had kind of forgot who was playing who. I remember Griffin Davis was doing Orko, and I remembered Mark Hamill was doing Skeletor. And I still haven't looked at the cast list, but I could just tell from some of their voices who they were. So I'm like, oh, there's Tila. Like, that's Sarah Michelle Gellar. Like, I totally recognize her voice, even though I haven't seen her in anything for a long time. And listening to Evelyn, I'm like, oh, that's Lena Headley from Game of Thrones. Like, very clearly. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the king is Diedrich Bader. I don't remember that. I, it's, yeah. I'm sure of it. There was like certain tones that he took when he was talking low and slow where I was just like, that's Diedrich Bader. Like little hints of his Batman in there, you know, <laughs> just little hints of it. Yeah. But. Episode five, uh, they introduced another character and it was voiced by the Allstate guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember that guy's name, but I Carl don't... literally told me his name last night because he was talking about some other show he was in. He's also the Pager King in 30 Rock. <laughs> Just the biggest loser ever. Uh, So a lot of this controversy around all of this is He-Man and Skeletor dying. And a lot of people are outraged by this. But I'm like, man, it's a story. Like, just let the story unfold. I I just get so irritated with people just... They just, you know that the negativity machine was just ready to go when this dropped, you know? Yeah. It's just like, there's always an outrage machine. There's always a backlash and how much the backlash catches. You never know until the thing comes out. But it's like, man, we got like, what, six episodes? Five. Five episodes? Like, give yeah. it a fucking break. Let it on. And it really, like, it what it, it set up something that's going to be really interesting going in the back half of the first season. Whenever, like, it, I think it's six months or whatever when it comes out. I thought it did a really good job of 
A, building the world and then defining the rules so that once, like, everything kind of comes back to a point at the end of episode five where if you were expecting the, the original show, if you get through the first five, it the next episode, next five will probably be more so of what you were looking for. If you were just like, I want a lot of He-Man Skeletor fighting, I think you're going to end up well surprised if you get through the first five. Yeah. I also wanted to say, like, talking about She-Ra a bit, like, I fucking love She-Ra. I've been spouting its virtues since it came out, and it was a watch that I did with my daughter all the time, and we really loved it. And I really loved how, when you boil it down, the only villain that's in the entire series by the end of it is the main villain, like, Horde Prime. And the he Horde, doesn't, yeah. He doesn't come out until, like, just before the very last section of episode. So I think there's, like, 40 I think he comes out in like episode twenty nine. Like, yeah, he's it's a while before you see him. Like, I mean, he's probably pulling the he's definitely pulling the strings behind the scenes, but he's not outed as the main villain for yeah, a while. Yeah, he's not really pulling the <laughs> strings. He just sort of set up a situation that that Hordiac continues right and but my point is like i really love the character development they did but they built the world differently because i don't think there's the love for she-ra that there was for he-man and so i think he-man is a little more remembered in the public consciousness than she-ra was so they had to attack that show in a very different way which is like we need to just reset it and like restart everything i mean part of that is like katra who's uh kind of the main antagonist through most of She-Ra. Yeah. She is not really a character of any weight in the original She-Ra cartoons. Like, she's just kind of like a hench person who sometimes shows up. Like, she doesn't have any more cachet than, like, Skunk or in, like, you know, like, the original cartoons. But they decided that would be the interesting character to build out. And because they're rebuilding the world, they're able to reset things and, like, do it in an ideal way where we're, like, we can play with their orientation here. Or we can, like, play with these origin stories or things like that or update. It, right like this is trying to do a very different thing and so i think it's natural that she-ra comes out of the gate more fully formed in a way for for the audience because they're not trying to continue off of something this is trying something that's harder <laughs> like it is harder and i haven't seen all five so i can't like properly judge the first half of the season but i did like what i saw in that first episode i am looking forward to it and i noticed like kevin smith wrote the first episode and i was very impressed at how unkevin smith like it was you know what i mean like he really really committed to it and like went to make it a fantasy thing rather than like having a a lot of Kevin Smith style jokes. Like even the jokes that were in it felt like they were a part of He-Man. And uh, Carl and I had had a conversation yesterday or maybe it was Friday. It's probably Friday about how like Tila is just feeling out in the cold because she doesn't know the secret. Right. And it's like, you think about the cartoon. It's like, yeah, that's fucked up that he, keeps the secret from the people he's battling with all the time there's no reason for them not to know because they are his allies and they've never betrayed him or anything like that so why would he keep that secret from him and they just address it and right it's out not of the gate you know when superhero lord um, the main reason people have secret identities is to protect the people that they're trying to around them you know that would be in danger if people knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Right. Or they're trying to – or they're doing something illegal and they're trying to um, not face repercussions because of that. Like if For they're being a vigilante. vigilante. Yeah. But this – like, and I think what but, you're getting at there is like this is do, doing none of those things with He-Man. He's he's absolutely on the side of the kingdom. Yeah. So, so you, you have uh, Man of War and then Tila's what, Man of War's daughter and – but they're both fighting with them and definitely very capable on their own where if people know that Prince Adam is He-Man, then it doesn't really mean anything, although it gives them more incentive to fight for him. Yeah. Yeah. The only backside I could see to having that secret identity is that, like, they might start attacking the actual kingdom. Like, they're... You know what I mean? Like, they might actually attack their castle. And I could see that being a problem, but that's only if the villains find out. If you're talking to your people, you're enlisting in your battles. It's, that's when it starts to fall apart, right? Yeah. So I like that they did that right out of the gate because it's an illogical thing that was baked into the cartoons. And they're just like, we're going to address it because it's a more adult show. Like, 
you got to have these conversations. So I like that. I like the direction it's going. I feel like it's in pretty sure hands so far. Yeah. It's kind of the thing like, uh, and I mean, it's definitely like attacking the thing that really bugs me a lot. Like when I'm watching, especially the first few seasons of Arrow, where Green Arrow, he's basically keeping his eye, every secret from everybody. And it's just, why does half, half of this stuff have to be a secret? I'm going to be honest. I think all of this goes back to Superman and Batman. Oh, yeah. I think they established the superhero template, and it makes sense for their characters, but it doesn't make sense for all characters, but it was a trope that everybody just felt like they had to do for a long time. And honestly, the only reason it was undone was because Robert Downey Jr. had an outtake on Iron Man where he's doing the press conference and he's like delivering all these different things. And then he's just joking around. And he's like, I am Iron Man, like goes on that whole thing. And it was just a riff by Robert Downey Jr. And they loved it so much. They kept it into it. But that blew it apart because it was an electric moment in the yeah. theater. It really was. It was like, wow, they just like did that. And it shouldn't matter, but it did matter at the time because it was such a subversion. Even though it was just like a riff by Robert Downey Jr., it subverted what they had done for so long in these style of genres. And then you realize when you pull it away, well, why does that matter? Like, it it matters for Spider-Man, right? Yeah. We talked about that. It makes sense for Spider-Man, although they even revealed his in the last movie. So, you know, they even undid that and they're going with the story. But But it's not something that's... We haven't seen any of the repercussions of right. his outing. Right. But that's that's what will make it interesting, right? Like there's a good story to be had Well, there. there's definitely a great story. Like an unmasking story is usually a pretty interesting story because – well, I mean like the Daredevil run where like um, Karen knows uh, his secret identity – she gives it to somebody who sells it to Kingpin for right. a fix, like just for a fix because she's strung out. And that that whole arc. I think it's Born Again it, is the. Yeah. And it's just such an interesting story because, you know, he ends up forgiving her, although she like has the ultimate betrayal of him. He never blames her. That's yeah. the thing in the arc. Matt Murdock always blames himself. He doesn't worry about other people's transgressions other than the villains he's going after, right? But, like, he never blames Karen. Like, it's a trope that's not needed for most of the genre. So yeah. I like that they blew it apart. And He-Man is one where it's not needed. So yeah. I'm glad that they're blowing that apart as well. So let's go to some news. So James Gunn has been talking to Kevin Feige and Toby Emmerich, who's the head of the DCEU right now, about a hard Harley Quinn group movie. He said that both parties are receptive, but he's unsure if it'll happen because of all the lawyers that are involved, which is a very honest answer, right? Like, it sounds like everybody wants to do it, but we're not sure if we can get the lawyers to line up on it because you're talking so many contracts, so much with profit sharing and things like that. Like, do you give DC equal profit sharing on a Marvel thing? Because DC's track record is not nearly as good as Marvel, right? It's like little details like that that might make this not happen but what's your thought of like a harley quinn group team up because i i saw all this buzz about like a mcu dceu potential crossover and i was like i don't need it and then i read that particular one and that james gunn is manning it and i'm like i actually would be interested in that i think that sounds interesting those are two characters that i could see actually working together what do you think you know there's a lot of rules that are going through my head but Rule 34 sticks out the most when you have a Harley Quinn group crossover. What's that? You don't know Rule 34? I don't know Rule 34. (laughs) I know the first rule of Fight Club is, well, I can't talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, you're not supposed to talk about it. I can't talk about the second rule either. So Rule 34 is uh, if there's internet porn about it. (laughs) If there can be porn about something, there is porn about something. Does it exist? It's going to now. It's going to now. (laughs) Well, that's a very in-depth thought. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking there's going to be some weird hentai coming out in the next couple of years. (laughs) There already is some weird like Harley Quinn porn, just to be sure. I mean, there's already a lot of Harley Quinn porn out there. I don't know if there's group porn because I feel like it would involve CGI. That seems like it's a tick over what porn... I don't know, Wood Rocket will probably go for it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it makes sense to me because Rocket is a bit unhinged and Harley is a bit unhinged. And they both can do the right thing, 
but they're predisposed to do the wrong thing. And Groot just kind of like follows along and occasionally spouts something in his I am Groot that makes them like reconsider their their course of action. This makes sense to me. It absolutely <laughs> makes sense to me. You know what I mean? Like Groot's just kind of the bruiser in the back, except for when he's a baby. But he's a te- if he's a teenager by now, by the time this happens, he'll be fully grown Groot again, I'm sure. Right? Yeah. I think if you're going to do it, this is a good way to do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it that way. I mean, I would definitely be in, like, with James Gunn going through Suicide Squad and James Gunn's history with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, like, if anybody could pull it off, he would be the one to pull it off. Now, that being said, do I think it has a chance of ever happening? I give it an 11% chance. (laughs) That's barely a chance. (laughs) Yeah, but that's what I give it. It's about like that. I don't. I don't think either of these companies need it to happen, which is why I don't give it a higher chance. But I I do think there's a chance of it happening. And I think if you're really trying to bring the movies back in a big way on the big screen, because we've now trained ourselves to not go to the movies. It was slowly happening, but it's out in full force and we're seeing evidence of that right now. So I think it does have a chance and it could grow over time. But we'll see. Like if it winds up that the theaters really truly go away and it's just like a super niche thing, there's no chance that this happens. I can't see it happening and like trying to decide what platform to put it on or any of those things, you know. Like, what do you do? Put it on a neutral platform? (laughs) Probably not. Oh, there's just so, so much stuff that would have to go be gone through just legally to get this to happen. I and I, you know, if it was if it was something more like one of the big, well, I don't know. Like, I think people would be big more for like a big name crossover, but that's less likely to happen. I think Harley Quinn's a big name. Harley Quinn's definitely a big name. And I think people love Groot. So I do think this could be the right combination of characters. It would actually be more interesting than throwing (laughs) Superman into the mix or Spider-Man into the mix. Like, I I think this is a good alchemy because it's two characters that are both popular, but they're not like so defined that you can't play with them. Whereas like Batman and Superman are so defined that it's just like, it's a debate every time they have a movie. There's going to be people who love it and hate it no matter what, but even more so than other characters. This isn't playing with those characters. So I think it has a, and in that regard, I think it could have a shot of it happening, but I just feel like unless the companies feel like they have a need to do it, it's probably not going to happen. And I don't see either of them having a need. I do know, Warner Brothers seems very, very high on the stuff they have coming down the pike. Is it going to be good? I don't fucking know. Their track record's not sterling in this regard. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, they feel like they have a good slate of stuff coming. So, I don't know. We'll see. So, putting Groot and Harley Quinn together. And we know some of the writers' view on Batman in a certain activity. What do you think about Groot going south? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Dude. Marvel characters go south. (laughs) Except for Namor. He's very selfish. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He just screams at them and tells them how he's better than them. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, like, I'm not sure that the organs of Atlanteans are the same. Like, sex organs are probably different. They probably lay eggs or something. I don't know. I I don't know if they've gotten into it in the comics, (laughs) but I certainly haven't read them. I'll put it that way. (laughs) So I'm putting Namor off the table, but I think the whole MCU definitely does it. (laughs) Apparently Warner Brothers is like on the line of like heroes don't do that. But I asked Warner Brothers if that's the line you're taking, which we've said in a previous episode we don't support. What about anti-heroes? Like does Lobo go down? (laughs) I doubt it, but (laughs) it's possible. Yeah, I think he does. Does Deathstroke go down? Yeah, he definitely goes goes you down. So? You think he's a good like lover? watching enough to not, at least the uh, Manu Bennett's Deathstroke. He goes south. I think he only goes south if he's like in the corner of a room and he can keep an eye everywhere else while he's going. Because <laughs> I feel like that dude doesn't get caught unaware a lot. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so he's like, yes, this is a position I can still watch out, but only if he's in the corner of a room. So he'll like actually do the annoying shit where he's like got to move a bed and stuff. So there's probably no moments of passion. It's just very. And like, his ass is in the corner and he's he's face down. It's There's none of the 69 well, girl but, on top thing. Yeah. It's like face down with his eyes up like you 
his eyes are up there like a crocodile watching. You know yeah. I mean? Just ready to strike if it happens. Probably wears a sword to bed. That's not comfortable. So he's never on his back. Like he's always on top. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to go there, let's just go there. <laughs> Uh, so while we're on DC, let's not move off it just yet. Uh, so David Ayer took to Twitter to talk about his version of Suicide Squad because, of course, they have this super ridiculous, like, release the Ayer cut. And they had put out a director's cut, and I had thought that that I was have his seen cut. I have seen the director's – or the, the – Quote director's cut of Suicide right. Squad. Well, you were very apt in saying quote because apparently it really is not his cut. It was just Warner Brothers probably with different editors like adding in extra scenes. It really wasn't his cut. It apparently. definitely was a better cut than the theatrical cut. It filled in a lot of gaps that the theatrical cut had out that didn't have it included. And I, I was like, this is good. I didn't need to see more. But so David Ayer took to Twitter and said, I made something amazing. My cut is an intricate and emotional journey with some bad people who are shit on and discarded, a theme that resonates in my soul. The studio cut is not my movie. Read that again. And my cut is not the 10 week director's cut. It is the fully mature edit by Lee Smith standing on the incredible work by John Gilroy. It's all Stephen Price's brilliant score and not a single radio song in the whole thing. It has traditional character arcs, amazing performances, a solid third act a resolution a handful of people have seen it if someone says they've seen it they haven't so in other words like there's very few people that have actually seen his cut of the movie i'm just gonna say like just fucking put it out can we just not deal with this fanfare and having the the fanboys complaining and stuff like warner brothers had and it's really just occurring to me today how false this promise was that like they were the director's studio right like marvel they had a a machine or whatever and you had to come in and fit and interlock everything with what they were doing but dc has taken away the edits from who knows how many directors now (laughs) Like, we know of two for sure. Yeah. And they're DC. Well, that, like, Justice League, I mean, he, he stepped out of that role, but you didn't see a lot of direct, you don't see directors, like, finishing or quitting halfway through Marvel movies. And I think that we saw says one. a lot. But, I mean, we saw Edgar Wright before it came to the True. screen. He had done he did most a lot of, of the pre production yeah. stuff, yeah, for a few years. And I think. Warner Brothers spun that off of the Edgar Wright's thing and we're like, we're the studio that does it for directors. But that's just bullshit. Like, there's no reason for this cut not to come out. I don't feel strongly about it. I don't particularly want to see it. But I also know it sounds like they took away his movie. And it's like, dude, you already opened the floodgates with the Snyder Cut. Just fucking do it. Just do it. Put it out there. Shut everybody up. Maybe it's better. I don't know. It's negligible to me. Like, I've never been huge on David Ayer. I know he wrote Training Day, which is great. But he didn't direct that. He just wrote it. So See, and part of my problem with, like, you know, releasing an Ayer Cut is, like, it's it may make a lot more sense. But it's still, the end of the day, it's these people fighting a glowing sky cloud i've seen that i don't i don't know what what they could bring that i would be interested i mean it's kind of like the justice league uh, we got to cl- keep these mother boxes that do stuff right <laughs> whatever the plot needs us to do at this particular point and it's just the story's not different and I think a, like a lot of a lot of stuff that I've had issues with the DCEU is that the stories are kind of lacking and it just kind of – you can polish it up as much as you want, but it's still at the end of the day. It's still what it is. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. And one of my problems with the Suicide Squad could not be – out of the air cut unless he's like actually redoing shit again because it sounds like this was finished and if this was finished that means they're just fucking sitting on it which is what i find ridiculous about it right like the snyder cut it was not finished so he went back and refilmed things and like retouched up stuff and things like that my understanding of this was it was already finished he had a cut it was taken away from him from that company that cut together the trailer so it seems like a different set of hurdles in this particular circumstance but my problem with the suicide squad is stuff like killer croc is for example is the worst stereotype of a black person and it's like that really fucking bothered me when i watched it and 
I seriously doubt that he didn't have that in the air cut, for example. Yeah. You know, or, like a lot of, or like Jared Leto's Joker sucks. And I don't think you can like have cuts where I like it. Like I saw what they did with him in the new Justice League movie and like I wasn't impressed with that either. So it's like I don't think you're going to completely or, change I mean, it just, the character. Yeah. Or even like the, uh, the, the fire guy, the Latino guy, like he was, and I can't remember his character's name off the top of my head, but I mean, he was just... Just a stereotypical, angry Latino that you yeah, would see in movies just, all the time. Yeah. He didn't have any depth, and it was like, I I don't care if this guy lives or dies. I I haven't seen anything that, like... And he doesn't even bring anything to the team, it seems like. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. It's just my problems with it, I don't think would be resolved by an air cut, but... If you already have it, just fucking put it out. You already opened the floodgates. You opened yourself to this. Just fucking just do it. Sell a Wash few. Wash your hands with it. Be done. A few million with it. DVDs because you know people are going to get those new Blu rays out. I mean, really, what the, the draw is for them is like more people watching HBO Max or something yeah. on HBO Max. That's, I mean, realistically, that's where the game's at now. Yeah, Blu rays are still sold, but it's it's more of a niche market at, that, at this point. Like, you can tell it if you go into like a Target or something. Like, the Blu ray sections used to be huge, and now they're like, like two shelves, three shelves, like it's not much. So people are watching stuff on streaming. That's that's definitely the pull. Uh, let's move over to the Disney side of the ledger. So this is a story that's so big, we just cannot ignore. Um, so is there a red in that ledger? <laughs> yes. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney for a breach of contract over her back end in Black Widow. Disney countered with a statement, and I really fucking hate this statement, and I'll get into why in a second. It's sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, dude, pump your brakes a little bit here. Like, the fact that you're fighting her on the back end money is also... A callous disregard for the horrific prolonged global effects for the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just as much a callous disregard as Scarlett Johansson is. And this is all bullshit. That has nothing to do with it. They are making money off of the streaming end of it for Disney+. Plus. They don't release those numbers. We have no idea how much is on there. But she was promised one thing. She tried to renegotiate her contract. They would not renegotiate her contract. And then they like put this out and cut her out of potentially half of the money it made, maybe more, you know? Yeah, like, there was get fucking real here. This is upwards not, of like fifty million dollars. Like it was a substantial amount of money. Yeah. So like Disney's statement was really stupid. There was also a story that Kevin Feige was fucking pissed when they decided to release it onto Disney Plus. And Apparently, he's usually an even keel guy and like very soft spoken, but he was like screaming at executives and things like he was very upset when they made that decision. He wanted it to window in the theater for a couple of months before it went to Disney Plus and they did not honor that. So he wasn't happy with this either. On top of it, he said this is really bad because like he realizes his actors are the lifeblood of the MCU. Like, yes, there are other very important elements but people go there to see the characters that they like and they want to see those actors play those characters and when you're pissing off those actors and you're setting a precedent that you might be underhanded with their contracts that's not good for your brand right yeah and he already fought this with robert downey jr right like robert downey jr was getting paid shit for like what the iron man movies were making and the guy who was co-in charge of mcu and was handling the finances at the time with feige was just nickel and diming everybody and so robert downey jr was just like i don't want to do it and that's how feige got control was he went over to bob Iger, who was the ceo and said look i have these ideas for huge movies and i think they'll be really successful but we need to keep Robert Downey Jr. happy. He's going to be integral to this. Like the the whole franchise is built off of this character. Like we need to do him right and make him want to be in the movies. And so that's how we took over Marvel. So of course this just flies in the face of that. Like this is just yeah. consistency from him. You know, and people have been wanting a Black Widow movie long before COVID was a thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's one thing that makes me think it's bullshit. Yeah, and it may not have been as successful as I hoped for in theaters. But once again, like, we don't really know how successful it was because we don't know those Disney Plus numbers. And I do know a lot of people didn't like it because it wasn't moving the Marvel story forward. I maintain it does. Just does it in a slight way as 66% of Marvel movies do. Yeah. You introduce the character with the torch pass. Like, that's going to be an ongoing thing. But... People are acting like this is the worst flame out of a Marvel movie when they don't even know how much 
it actually made. You know what I mean? And then on top of it, its theatrical release still made more than The Incredible Hulk. So it's not like it was... In a pandemic. Yeah, in a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Like it's 322 million in the box office as we're talking worldwide. Not a fucking bomb by any stretch of the imagination. There's no way it didn't make like at least twice its money back. Yeah, I was going to think it probably had about a $115 million budget, I think. Yeah, it couldn't be much higher than that, honestly. So it definitely made money just in the theatrical release. And once again, it's Disney Plus money. We don't know how much it made, like 20 bucks a pop. Wasn't that what it was? Uh, it's either 20 or 30, yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right, 29.99 or something like yeah. that. But that's a lot of fucking money on the table that we just don't know because they don't report that. They have to report the earnings from the box office because the theaters have to report it. And it goes through this other agency and then they put it out to the press. So we know those numbers. We don't know this number. Like, yeah, I really think this is Disney just nickel and diming people. I talked about them not paying their creatives before, right? Like with the novelizations. Yeah. And screwing a lot of people out of stuff like that. Like this is a strategy we're starting to see Disney employ a lot as a big corporation. This just like goes into that. And, like, I, and I think COVID made it worse. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, I think, you know, that there was a lot of, I mean, in 2020, Disney took a fucking beating because amusement parks closed, you know, nobody's going to the theater. Like, I mean, they took a beating. But they also strongly established their streaming art. No, they, in a they way, did. They established it in a way that, like, so many naysayers, like, nobody is like, oh, well, maybe they will fail with it. Like, they clearly own streaming now. Like, they are bigger than everybody else in the game. And they just launched not that long ago. So, wild success story. So, before we cry those tears from with their amusement parks no, and all that I... stuff, which I realize is a wash, like, they also spent how many fucking billion by buying Fox, like they were going to lose money <laughs> in the, the last year or two, no matter what. This is a long term strategy. They're a giant company that like over time will just make money hand over fist off of all of this. So no, but I, I don't think they're using the I think them. they're using the, the losses they had. Like, I am not saying this is good or bad. Oh, I'm, no, I know. I'm saying I know. this is this is not directed their ju- their their justifications are like oh well we lost so much money because of the amusement parks well we have we're not going to pay the back end on black widow and i think that's bullshit yeah and i think I, i'm going to be specific i think this is part of a bigger strategy they're going to try and employ which is to not pay back end to actors for streaming shows and streaming movies. I think this is where they're moving towards because awful. I think they can see that movie theaters are going away. Like they just are. We've been talking about it a lot and I'm going to be talking about it a lot more because it's so integral to a lot of things we talk about. But they are going away. So now they're fighting over future finances. This isn't a fight about Black Widow, really. Yeah, I mean, it is I, for it is for ScarJo, but for Disney, it's more of a fight for like how much profit they can make in the future. And I only care so much about that, but I don't like like it when creatives are fucked. I really don't like it. And this is just like they fucked Scarlett Johansson because she was a producer on the movie. She helped put up the movie. And part of this movie coming out in a nonsensical order like it did was because they didn't put it out before because that other dude that we're just talking about, like, I don't even want to mention his name because fuck that guy. But like he wouldn't put out a Black Widow movie because he was like, girls don't buy action figures. You know, it's just like fucking ridiculous shit like that. And Black Widow action figures fucking sell. I can assure they, they you they do. They do. And little girls and a lot of little boys and a lot of non-binary, they buy tickets. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, I just, I don't know. I'm just annoyed by all this, but I don't think I have anything else to say about it, really. I think we've hit the high points. Yeah. So producer John Davis is saying that Take YTD's Flash Gordon movie was to be animated, but now Watiti has changed his mind and wants it to be live action. Yes. Uh, It was mentioned it's a passion project of his. And he had everybody watch Flash Gordon for Thor Ragnarok because he wanted them to understand the color palette and the uh, the feel of it. Yeah. Like, like uh, he wanted them to understand the vibe he was going for, essentially. And he's written the screenplay, so it's not like something that will necessarily go away. Like, as long as he's still hot in Hollywood like he is now. And he wrote the screenplay. Like, the producer pointed out 
because this has gone through a lot of incarnations. Like, it was going to be a sequel for a while that the guy who directed The Kingsman was helmsing. It was going to be a direct sequel to the 1980 movie. Then he went away. They kicked the tires of somebody else. That didn't work out as a sequel. Take IYTD, I think, is looking to reboot it and start it over. But he is a big, big fan of the 1980 movie. And it sounds like... He's really, really into this. So I I didn't even know what the point of like putting out another one was. I was excited for a while and then I started to think about it. And it's like, well, what I like about the movie is it's like such a train wreck in so many ways. It's really fun to watch. But I love Take IYTD, dude. And I think he could do something really funny and fun with it. As long as it's like more the 1980 film than it is the older IP of it. You know yeah. what I mean? I think just from watching... Thor Ragnarok and just seeing the tonal switch in the the Thor universe like going from one and two to Ragnarok is just such a tonal switch and I think he can has the vision to make that work and I think pointing that out it's like he definitely has a love for the 1981 Flash Gordon yeah so I would be all I would be in line to see this in the theater. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm gonna see anything take IYTD anyway, and I will see a Flash Gordon movie no matter who's helming it when it comes out. But, but put this that is together. a marriage that makes sense <laughs> to me and I would really love to see. And I hope that they don't go too high budget on it just because like I don't want this to just be a thing where it flames out. Spend it on set design because yeah. that worked well. <laughs> <laughs> Not on actors. <laughs> Oh, God, I love that movie. Uh, Speaking of previous love, so I went on vacation to the Oregon coast this last week, and I pointedly would not do anything with podcasts. Like, I was trying to be present with my family and spend time. They spend a lot of time at the beach, and I'm not, like, a run-in-the-ocean guy. I'm, like, a sit-on-the-beach-and-read-a-book guy like my mom was. And I was finishing up a book I was reading. I was reading the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, by the way, highly recommend. It doesn't play out the way you necessarily think it will because it's like a cottage industry that was going on for a lot of years at the novelization where like they would be making the movie and they go off of the script and then like sometimes stuff would be different in the novelization because they didn't have time to change it as it changed for the movie or sometimes it would be after the movie came out so they're just giving more they just basically uh filled out the screenplay sort of thing yeah So this particular one with Tarantino, he basically gives you a lot of depth with Rick Dalton. He gives more depth with Cliff, the stuntman, like Brad Pitt's character. And he answers some things that you really want to know from the movie. Like, did Cliff kill his wife? Yeah, he fucking killed his wife, dude. (laughs) Not only did he kill his wife, like... He had her sliced in half. She was, like, starting in on him, and, like, he had her sliced in half and then held her together and felt guilty about it immediately. And then, like, the Coast Guard came and stuff, and then, like, they immediately, she fell apart. (laughs) (laughs) And he murdered other people, too. Like, not only was he in in World War II and killed more Japanese than any other soldier in the entire war. But, like, he came back, and the way he gets his dog was, like, it was this dog that this guy owed him money, and he was like, but I I have this dog, and I'm going to fight this dog, and then I'll put in money that I have and then give you half, and I'll keep doing it till I pay you off. And so he's like, all right. He falls in love with the bulldog. The dog doesn't have time to heal, but it's, like, more than made up the money that he owed him at that point. And he's like, we should just retire the dog. And the guy is, like, going to keep fighting it even before the dog heals. And so he just straight up murders the guy without, like, a second thought. He has no problem murdering. But also, big movie fan. Like, (laughs) he's going to, like, independent movies in the 60s and watching it because he doesn't like the unrealistic World War II depictions that are in movies. Like, he likes more gritty stuff, which leads him into, like, French New Wave movies and things like that. So it's almost like he writes reviews at certain parts. But it's, like, done from his character's perspective so it's pretty interesting we get more of the bruce lee stuff um we get some stuff with charlie manson we get a whole chapter that follows around charlie manson and what his motivations actually are uh we get some stuff with the the member of the family who's watching over the uh the older guy you know who owns a spawn ranch yeah and uh And then it doesn't end with the climax that it does in the movie. Like, they brush over it, like, talking about a futuristic thing and just, like, one chapter where they kind of talk about where, like, Rick Dalton's career eventually goes. But they talk about how uh, conservatives really, really glommed on to Rick Dalton after that because, like, he killed these hippies, right? So, like, he has a bit of a career rejuvenation just with these guys, like, really liking him. But, like, he's liberal, but he doesn't really care because, like, 
you know, tickets are tickets, right? <laughs> and uh, it ends on Steve McQueen goes up to Polanski's place and Rick Dalton decides he wants to talk to him because he knew him before and make a connection with him and finds a story and really has a, a good time talking to him. He goes off and has some drinks with uh, Timothy Oliphant's character in it who, like, they kind of have a pissing match a little bit in the book. Like, they definitely yeah. extend out stuff that you saw in the movie but, like, maybe didn't necessarily get what was going on in the sub-levels. He really, really dives into what's going on with that and seeing them get along. And then the the little girl who's, like, you know, like the... Uh, premiere actress kind of at least in her mind and her talking to Rick Dalton about preparation and everything like that but that like rejiggers his love of acting too because he's like just showing up the set hungover and like you know just doing enough to get by and she kind of lights a fire in him and it like it ends with him like running lines with her over the phone because she calls him at midnight and he's like <laughs> I don't think this is appropriate and she's like you're thinking of a typical eight year old girl who has to go to school tomorrow I have to work tomorrow and my mother Mother's passed out on Chardonnay, like, and I need to be prepared for tomorrow. So she runs over lines with the with Rick Dalton over the phone, and he gets off the phone, and he just realizes he loves acting, like, and it ends there. And I'm like, yeah, like this is it, it's completely set up in a different way, but I really like the way that they do it. Like there are beats that are the same in the movie, but they're played from a different perspective with different information, and so I think it reads differently than the movie does. I think it adds to the movie, and I think when you watch the movie, you're you're going to think of stuff from the novelization. So I think if you're a Tarantino fan, you'll really love it. That wasn't initially what I was going to get into. So I finished that <laughs> book finally. Then I read The Princess Bride by William Goldman because I had like skimmed over it in parts, but I'd never actually sat down and read it. Man, oh man, what a great writer William Goldman is. As much as I love the movie, I think I love the book more. It's just fantastic. And it was really interesting having seen the movie comparing how he does stuff because he gets so in depth than some things. Like he talks about Inigo, for example. You find out what he's up to after his father dies. Like his father goes to sell the six-fingered man the sword gets murdered and so he goes off to all these masters to learn fencing and he finally goes back to this other guy who was known as the best sword maker it was really his father but his father was an artist and didn't feel like he was complete enough in his craft to advertise to people he was the greatest so whenever this great sword maker had a sword he couldn't make he would like beg the other guy to make him the sword <laughs> so that's how he comes across the six-fingered man that guy adopts an ego and and Inigo just disappears one day. And he goes off to all these different uh, fencing instructors and masters to, like, learn how to fence. And when he comes back, he shows the guy who helped raise him, like, all the stuff he learned. And he's like, you're better than many people I've seen. And he goes, there was this one person who's a wizard. And they talk about a wizard. Like, a master is, like fantastic right yeah a level above it is a wizard okay <laughs> like this is like somebody who's so good at swords that like you only get maybe one a lifetime if even that and he said he saw this guy who was a wizard and he was like you would not beat him and so Inigo is, is like kind of kind of depressed and he's like but he wouldn't beat you either so he's basically saying like it would be a draw you're a wizard and from that point on he's a wizard and they use this term a lot which makes you appreciate Wesley more because in such a fast amount of time he learned to be a wizard because it's only like two yeah. years and they go to America like that's where he's going when the Dread Pirate Roberts attacks his ship and so he just learns all of this stuff very very quickly but but it's just fantastic the way that they, like, really um, draw out a lot of the storylines. There's this thing with, like, Princess Buttercup when she realizes she loves Wesley. And they go on this whole thing of, like, I loved you so much, like, two days ago. But then yesterday I was having lunch and I realized that the love I felt for you the day before yeah. can possibly compare to how I feel about you right now. And then this moment as I'm talking to you, I realize I love you even more than the day before. And she just goes on this whole thing. It's, like, three pages. I read it to my wife. She's just laughing. It's, like, the perfect encapsulation of, like, teenage love, right? <laughs> so she goes on this whole thing to him. And he looks at her and he just shuts the door. <laughs> <laughs> And it's because he doesn't know how to talk to her, but he does later as he goes off because he goes off to the sea to find his fortunes in America so that he can give her a proper life. And then he'll send for her when, when he figures it out. But there's this whole backstory between the two of them that's like 70 pages that's just not addressed in the movie at all. Right. Like they just yeah. give the very truncated as you wish. And I'm thinking about the movie and I'm like, this is fantastic because it works so well for the movie. And there's so many times where he's got four or five pages of descriptions of things just like very, very detailed where you're like, 
wow, man, like this is really cool. But then you realize that he just truncated it with one sentence and it's usually a funny sentence in the movie. And then just like you have all the information you need there. And I think that's what makes the movie so good is William Goldman like really, really loved his book and wrote something so fantastic. It's seriously one of the best books I've ever read. But then he is able to turn that into one of the best screenplays ever written. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that is a fantastic set of skills. And I highly recommend anybody who hasn't read it, read it. I read the 25th anniversary edition where William Goldman, he like has an extra story that goes at the beginning and end that like kind of talks about the Princess Bride, but he's still hammering this thing that S. Morgenstern, who wrote the book, is a real person and it's this estate. And that's really interesting too. And there's a thing in the book, like there are parts of the book that are interrupted by William Goldman interrupting his father, who has an accent, has a difficult time reading. He'll interrupt it for certain things. Like the whole, like, that's not fair. You know what I mean? Like that speech. But then he goes off further talking about how like it really, really bothered him after he read the book and then realized like even though it works out in the book, it tapped into something of his youth where he realized life isn't fair. And so he's like, I'm just here to tell the reader like life isn't always fair. And like it is a thing that you have to reckon with. And I'm sorry that I'm the one that has to tell you. But like it, the whole crux of the thing happens because he loved this book when he was a kid. He passes it to his kid. And they have this whole thing where he's like, he's got a wife who's a psychiatrist and they don't have the best marriage. And like before he goes off to L.A., she's like, don't mess with any starlets. And he's like, they don't exist anymore. But then he's like at poolside and a starlet's like flirting with him to get into one of his movies. And then he remembers the book because it's his kid's 10th birthday, which is when he was read The Princess Bride. So he's trying to track down this ancient copy. So he gets it to his kid. His kid cannot get through it. It's just like too boring for it. And so he's like not surprised, but he's really bummed out by it and so he starts reading it and he realizes his dad was skipping parts of the book when he was reading it to him so he gets a hold of his publisher and wants to abridge the edition and so there's (laughs) constantly parts like there's like three or four scenes where it's like him talking to his dad or whatever which would be like the the grandson and, and the kid right but like that's also interjected by him talking about how here S. Morgenstern had 25 pages on how Buttercup is preparing to be a princess, which which apparently was a hilarious satire on how royalty lasted, but I don't think really works with the narrative of this, so I'm cutting it all. And there'll be like things like this where he just talks about what he's cutting from the story. And so it's very much about editing as well and how to like really get to the core of a good story. And you can tell when you're reading this, it's like trying to make the point of like, There's so many conventions in storytelling that are just unnecessary, much like when we were talking about the secret identity, right? Like it can be integral to the story, but a lot of the time it's not. It's a thing you put in because you think you're supposed to put it in, but it's actually pulling away from the story. And so he's talking about the, uh, the craft of writing. So that's my book corner. Read The Princess Bride. Read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Highly recommend them. (laughs) So take it easy. We'll see you next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Follow us or reach out on Instagram at NSF underscore network, Facebook's Not Safe for Network page, or email Not Safe for Network podcast at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. Subscribe to all the podcasts on our network. Season 3 of Movies with Wrestlers has Eric and Connor answering the question on everyone's mind. Who's better, The Rock or John Cena? Every week, a cosmic void has Jeremiah and Biggs deconstructing influential movies. Not Safe for Network examines the zeitgeist through rabbit holes, deep dives, interviews, and pop culture battles weekly. And if you need some classic TV talk, catch up on the previous three seasons of In Syndication.